Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum Podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by historian Dr. Gil Valentine. Thank you so much for talking with all of us today. It's a delight to be with you, Alex. Thank you for the invitation to join the conversation with you. Well, we're um, delighted to be talking about your new book. I have called it the hot book of the summer for Adventism, and not just because we're in a heat wave and it's good beach reading, but it also deals with some really hot topics in Adventism in the past that have, I think, really important applications for us today. The book, of course, is Ostriches and Canaries Coping with Change in Adventism from 1966 to 1979. And, well, you were recently part of our Spectrum Book Club discussion with was a hit from uh, all the feedback that I received, I felt like we didn't get a chance to really dig into some of these important characters that you spend so much time researching. So this is the first of a three-part series in which we'll be looking at Robert Pearson, Siegfried Horn, and Richard Hamill. And today, we're going to be looking at the man at the center of the book in many ways, Robert Pearson, who was General Conference president from that time period from the 60s to the late 70s. So, you know the man more than most, and how would you describe uh, Robert Pearson as a man, as a human being? Well, first, uh, Alexander, let me, let me say how much I've been encouraged at the response to the book. There has been a, a really good feedback so far, and that, that's been very, very encouraging. And of course, Pearson is, is the central figure around which the book is structured. Um, and that's because, um, he came to the presidency in 1966 and, uh, his presidency lasted right through until 1979. And the, uh, the reason why his, uh, tenure is central is because um, I had been researching uh, the background to the Glacier View Conference and uh, the Ford Crisis, and I was interested in knowing how events had shaped up. And uh, his particular approach to leadership, his personality, his temperament, his philosophy of leadership and, and his understanding of the church all kind of contributed to the the series of developments that led to the events of 1980. Um, so that's why Pearson is, is somewhat a central character in the book. Um, short of stature, uh, not, a, not a tall man, but a very pleasant person, um, very engaging, a person who people responded to very readily. Um, and uh, he had a very interesting biographical background. <laughs> I can tell you a little more about that. Let's, yeah, let's, before we get into that, I, you kind of hint at that, that, you know, he was, was 
the way he kind of made his way in Adventism was as an evangelist. He was a successful evangelizing pastor. Um, would you say he was charismatic in, in a way, or what was his draw with people? Well, rather than actually being a successful evangelist and pastor, I think almost by contrast, his uh, success and his fast track, if, as we might put it, a fast track into the leadership of the church, came not because of pastoral skills and abilities, but because of promotional and entrepreneurial and organizational abilities. Um, Pearson was a, a son of the South. He was a, a son of the Bible Belt, <laughs> born in Iowa, grew up there from a, in a family that was reasonably well-to-do. His father was a banker. His father wasn't an Adventist. And his mother attended church infrequently, I think, because they were rather remote from, from the local Adventist church. So his early connections with the church were kind of somewhat at a distance, although his mother uh, conducted regular family worship. But in his teens, I think probably in his second or third year of high school, um, his father went bankrupt. This is just near the edge, the front edge of the recession um, in the nine, late 1920s and lost everything. So they, the family retreated to Florida um, and it was there that Pearson completed his high school. When he completed high school, he went back out to his birthplace in Iowa to help his brother run a dairy factory. And uh, Pearson, as a young person, was very much into sport. In fact, that was a distinctive feature of his personality and, and his background and his interests. He was really sport conscious at high school, captain his football team and basketball team. And in his first days of employment in the dairy factory, cheese factory, I think it was, out in Iowa, um, he was playing sports regularly over the weekend. So he had that kind of competitive <laughs> competitive spirit. Yeah. Um, I wanted to jump in there on that idea of competitive spirit and the point you're making about his promotional abilities. Did you see that kind of sportsman competitiveness color his um, leadership during the 60s and 70s? Very definitely. In fact, it was what took him into leadership to begin with. After just one year of being a church pastor, <laughs> he, he kind of encouraged his church to break all the records within gathering. And so the very next year, the conference said, we'll come and break the records for us at the conference level. <laughs> so he had this ability to get teams organized in his church and they kind of competed with each other. And, and it was a, a very good way of, of being able to work together. But he encouraged this, this gentle cons uh, competitive spirit. Later, when he became the General Conference president and wanted to focus on baptisms, he very much had in mind that this division was doing better than that division, and he wanted to let them know as a way of incentivizing a greater performance. Um, and he kept lists and saw, looked at results and looked at scores, kind of thing. So that, that was his uh, kind of mindset. Um, and it worked very well in... Uh, departmental leadership in his second year of, of ministry, and it worked very well in ingathering campaigns. <laughs> so when he went to the mission field in his third year of ministry, the same pattern emerged. He, he was very effective at, at working with ingathering there in Southern Asia, 
Um, just, just this kind of energy, commitment, um, enthusiasm <laughs> in a slightly competitive framework that, that was characteristic of his leadership. Great. That's so helpful to hear. Now let's jump back to where you were going with the story, which I hope will kind of talk will cover the area, the time period where he becomes an Adventist because it's very, it seems to me, very emotionally driven um, why he kind of comes into uh, the church. Um, yes, I think um, in, in his teenage years, um, and particularly just when he finished school, he was out working with his brother, involved in team sports, and not very committed. I'm not quite sure exactly what his, his relationship to the church was, but it was kind of on the edge, and he was drifting into um, involvement with sports and others outside the church. Then he got word that his mother was very sick back in Florida, and he went back in haste to try and see her, but arrived too late. She she had died before he arrived. And he was just absolutely stricken by that. I think he felt guilty that he hadn't made the enthusiastic commitment to the church that his mother had made and that his mother was hoping that he would make. And uh, there, there was a fair bit of guilt behind his uh, conversion. But the, the loss of his mother um, struck him very um, strongly and uh, he was overwrought by it. And within two months of the loss of his mother, he had decided to go to college and train for the ministry and got married in the meantime. Um, in fact, I think on his honeymoon, <laughs> he went off to college. So he had this kind of traumatic reintroduction to to the church. Not that he'd ever left it, but but he hadn't been fully committed. And and it was the loss of his mother that that re-energized re his commitment and was kind of the the recommitment was driven by remorse and and by guilt, but a commitment that changed his life completely from that point on. Yeah. Um, let's let's dig a little bit into his inner life and talk about. We've um, kind of talked about some of his motivation, competitiveness, and promotional. Where else do you see um, the man sort of psychology affecting um, the way that he led uh, Adventism as the GC president? I think that becomes manifest even during his his college years. He went to Southern Missionary College or Southern Junior College, it was called then, um, and enrolled in a two-year ministerial course. And it was a certificate program. And the uh, the course, I think it was 64 <laughs> semester credits, half of which were involvement in pastoral ministry and practicums out in the field. The rest was just fairly simple Bible study um, and study of spirit of prophecy. So for folks who for folks who aren't kind of in the academic system, what how many classes do you think he actually took 
uh, just given those credit hours, are we talking like less than, you know, what, what, what's your estimate on kind of how much time he actually was learning about all these things that yeah. he later on had opinions on? I, I don't recall the actual uh, transcript, but I think probably five classes a semester, so 20 classes over the two years, 10 of which approximately were involved in homiletics, evangelism, pastoral skills, and it took him into the field. And that was his, his, um, the natural bent of his temperament and personality anyway. He was a doer, an activist. Not, not a theoretician, not theologically inclined, not a deeply philosophical reflective person. So during his two years, he became involved in planting new churches and running evangelistic programs. He planted one church um, during his first year and then another church in his second year, which meant that most evenings during the week, he was out involved with Bible studies or church meetings and kind of focus in the classroom with Bible study wasn't a major focus of, of his program. Um, and that probably, I think, uh, shaped also his, his ministry in later life. He, he was a, a popular writer. He wrote many books. He was a good writer. Even in high school days, he enjoyed writing for the school magazine. Um, so he was a good writer, but it was at the devotional, popular, um, somewhat a simple faith level, which resonated with many, many church members. And his books were bestsellers for the publishers. Um, but, but not a deep theological person, not, not deep theological reflection. You spent some time in the book talking about what was one of those bestsellers that book. Was it, if I do, the title is like, So You Want to Be a Leader? Is yeah. Can you? Yeah. I, I thought that really helped to explain kind of his approach to Adventism. And also, in a way, it was the title itself is, um, you know, kind of um, boastful in a way, in that it's <laughs> kind of, in a way, it's like, look, I'm a, I'm a leader. If you, if you think that you can be as good as me, here's my method and see if you can make it, you know, young young Adventists out there in the 60s. I don't know. I haven't read the book, but I was curious if you spent time with him. Do you have any thoughts on that book in particular and what he was trying to communicate? The book actually grew out of his own experience. Um, and and his leadership was learned on the job. Um, so he had this intuitive uh, way of, of inspiring those around him, of, of energizing teams. Uh, that, that was his personality. That was part of his charisma. Which, which was distinctive and unique. And his book on leadership kind of drew on those leadership experiences. And, and in fact, I would suggest that it was one of his major contributions to the church. Because when he was um, division president in Africa, this was a time of huge upheaval and nationalism of, of leadership across many conferences. And, and his role as division president, he found himself um, having to train many local leaders, many national leaders. And it was a time when American leadership and European leadership was having to withdraw because of an awakening nationalism in those countries of Africa. 
And, and this book uh, was drawn from leadership lectures that he, that he gave to this emerging national leadership group. Um, practical, pragmatic, <laughs> down to earth. Um, this is what you do in this situation. This is the kind of way you handle this problem. Um, and, and it was very helpful in that era for that particular purpose. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for indulging me there. Um, <laughs> so we have somebody who is gifted as a leader, who inspires other folks. He has a sort of ambitiousness um, to how he sees Adventism. He's growth-oriented, clearly. Um, what bothered him? What scared him about the world and about the way that Adventism was changing? Yeah, um, good question. I think that what, what really bothered him was a, an uncertainty about all this change that was washing over the church during the 60s. He came back after these, this long period of 25 years in overseas service that 25 years have been broken up with a, a couple of short stints in America um, and a period of two or three years, maybe four years down in, in the South as president of the Texas Conference. But then he'd been back overseas. And when he came back from that mission service, he was troubled by the changes that he saw happening in society and in the church. So he, he suffered a bit of uh, culture shock coming back into the country exacerbated by what sociologists would call future shock. So much change happening that it, that it really rattled him. Um, and he saw this happening on campuses, in churches, um, amongst church members. And there was also a problem that, that he didn't feel fully comfortable with and felt somewhat intimidated by, I think because of his um, rather inadequate college preparation, he was troubled by the emerging group in Adventism that came from an intellectual background, of people that were joining the church who had degrees, the growing number of members of the church who had graduate awards that even the church was encouraging to go and get graduate awards to come back and teach at the colleges. So... He, he discerned that there were growing numbers of intellectuals in the church and, and that really concerned him. And, and he felt somewhat, um, what's the term here? Ambiguous about them or conflicted because he knew that they were making a contribution to the church, but he was apprehensive about the contribution they were making. So there's kind of almost a bit of a schizophrenia there. Um, he knew that he couldn't stop intellectuals becoming part of the church, but was fearful of that class. He felt inadequate to, um, to fully understand them, to fully appreciate their perspective, and, and felt intimidated to some degree, and uh, felt that the church was being threatened by, by their presence, in a sense. You... 
to um, have some riveting chapters that focus on the implications of this culture shock, future shock, and ambivalence about intellectuals, uh, because the ground zero for that is Berrien Springs, Andrews University, and the seminary. And, uh, but this is no thing new. Um, administrators concerned about intellectuals and what's happening on a college campus predates Pearson at schools, including Southern, postdates Pearson at schools, including Southern. <laughs> and Andrews and Walla Walla and La Sierra mm-hmm. and PUC. Um, what made him, or let's just take a moment and kind of jump into the, the trauma that this, uh, this ambivalence and this culture shock inflicted on some of the faculty at Andrews University. You talk about several including Sakai Kubo and Ted Vick. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what he thought about those men and what they were teaching and what, you know, undergirding this is this idea of belief that and over and over again, there's, it's not just Pearson, but others who will bring in these actually quite conservative um thinkers, if you think about what ideas mean in the world and what they mean at various points, who have just small details that they want to include about the synoptic gospels or you know, want to include a historical fact about or drawing from archaeology or geology. Oh, and over and over again, these scholars are brought into meetings, they kind of explain themselves. And everyone around says, well, you know, you're a little different, but you're pretty Adventist, you know. Yeah. Uh, but for Pearson, that wasn't enough. Uh, what was that fear? Was this like an Omega fear that this is the beginning of the end, that this is a, a kind of corrupt um, thinking that will undermine the foundations of the church? Did he extrapolate bigger uh, sort of ideological tensions that he didn't really you know were never really spoken but he sort of secretly thought because over and over again he creates a lot of agita for these scholars and yet he doesn't seem to really have a lot of um, facts about what's actually being thought or what people actually think sorry that's a long question (laughs) (laughs) yeah um, yeah Take it however you'd like. Right. Hilda Pearson's understanding of of Adventism was, I think, that uh, we had arrived pretty much in our understanding of what the truth was. And our task was to deliver that truth to the world and to deliver it with haste because the Lord was coming soon. And, And in fact, Living on the knife edge of time was, was characteristic of, of his own personal experience and what he saw as the, the experience of the church. The sense of imminence kind of came up very close for him. And he fully believed that the Lord would come in his own lifetime during his tenure of leadership if only we were faithful and if only we put every effort into proclaiming the word. 
So the idea of, of actually learning more or of encompassing wider visions of what Bible truth was didn't figure prominently with him. We had it together and our task was to deliver that. And he had this view that the truth had been confirmed by Ellen White and that her um, her uh, statements on issues were what settled things um, and that she was not in error in any way. Um, she might have had some frailties. She might have eaten oysters at some time. He might have been aware of that. But what she said was reliable and truthful in every respect. And if you're going to teach a class on the life and teachings of Jesus, then all you really need is, is the Bible and the desire of ages and maybe a supplementary text, Thoughts on the Mount of Blessings and, and uh, Christ's Object Lessons, which was what he'd experienced in, in class back at Southern. So the idea that teachers at uh, the seminary would teach a class and not make Desire of Ages the primary textbook was a bit incomprehensible to him. He, he was troubled by that. And the idea that there could be passages in the Gospel of John that were not in the original manuscripts, um, that to him sounded a bit like heresy and was going to weaken the faith of students. And it wasn't necessary for what our mission called us to do. Um, so he was, he was really threatened by that, as were those around him. Arthur White, of course, was, was also um, threatened by that in a major way. So teachers that had been trained in the discipline of New Testament studies and had become familiar with, with the problems of the synoptics and the Joanine tradition, um, when they felt it necessary to expose students to those problems and to encourage students to still hold on to their faith, <laughs> even while they were aware of those problems, he, he felt that wasn't, wasn't a safe way to go. Um, so that's, that's a good example, I think, Alexander, of what you raised there, the problem of synoptics. But it, it was a problem that also made itself manifest in other parts of the New Testament with the, the Epistle of the Hebrews, <laughs> with the Book of Acts, um, and, of course, with uh, chronology, the age of the earth. Um, not, not the matter of six days of creation, but just... Ellen White had said the earth was 6,000 years old and it had to be that way. Um, and he had difficulty understanding how people could have another point of view on that. He really did. He, he endeavoured to be um, encompassing in his approach, recognising that Hamill could think differently on some of these things, but he really wanted him to think the same and put pressure on him to think the same. But it was a kind of a, a fairly narrow view of truth and a, an already established body of truth. We don't need to worry about renewing things in, in any way. Yeah. One of the really great insights of your book for me, and I think it's important for Adventist leaders to understand it, is that where... Pearson saw problems 
and um, and and tried to use power sometimes in uh, damaging ways to deal with these emerging intellectuals. Many of those intellectuals were merely uh, trying to um, be true to the facts that they knew and also to help the church as it needed to mature in its understanding of things like scripture and Ellen White and science. And but with Pearson, you know, this is kind of a pressure fisher. Many people felt, I think Siegfried Horn, the diary um, entries that you quote from shows Horn is aware of this, sees this, so Nick bring another metaphor in there, this train wreck coming. And um, Pearson is, you know, trying to kind of stamp out error here and there. And the scholars are actually kind of caught in the middle. And they're, in a way, acting, I'll use another metaphor here, as midwives, trying to birth this new consciousness in a way that keeps the faith alive and keeps the church growing because, you know, almost every single person cared deeply about the Adventist community, at least while they were uh, there uh, employed by the church, and many continued to care about it afterward. And so they were often driven by kind of the same goal, which is to take care of the Adventist church and lead it forward. Obviously, um, those big fights happen, and your research on Glacier View um, is an example of documenting how mistakes were made early on that turned uh, something that could have been managed and probably would have been smaller, only exacerbated the issue. Um, my question here is uh, about Hamill. We'll be talking about Richard Hamill, president of Andrews University. He'll get his own podcast episode. But what was Pearson's view of Hamill? Was he bothered by Hamill, who was kind of an administrator, scholar, and so was perhaps untrustworthy? Did he not act quickly enough for Pearson? What was what was that relationship like? I think it was a relationship that, that matured and changed over time. Um, Pearson first encountered Hamill, I think, when when he was in the South and his sons were going to um, Southern College and Hamill was the academic dean there. So they got acquainted then. Um, and it was later when Hamill was at Andrews University that Pearson felt that Hamill wasn't being strong enough in containing um, the criticism that was coming. And I, that's worth uh, mentioning, I think, Alexander. The um, Pearson felt himself under a lot of pressure from church members. He got a lot of um, letters from church members who reported secondhand what they'd seen or heard, their fears, their apprehensions. So Pearson um, wanted to channel those on to his college administrators. He was uh, another characteristic of. of uh, Pearson was that he was a micromanager to some some degree. Um, he he wanted to keep in touch with everything that was happening in the church, and felt responsible for everything that was happening on the campuses. So particularly with Loma Linda and with Andrews University, 
he he felt the need to to pressure the administrators so that they would pressure the faculty <laughs> and that they would pressure the students to keep the church on its old traditional Adventist uh, railway tracks. He didn't want it veering off to the left or the right. And of course, as you mentioned, um, the, the professors, the teachers, coping with new information, new discoveries in their discipline, and feeling that they had an intellectual obligation, an ethical obligation, to inform students about new discoveries and new information and to suggest how it could be incorporated with traditional beliefs and how things could be adapted and modified. And that, that was part of their duty. Pearson felt that uh, Hamill should take more control of that and have a, a more conservative approach to his administration and a more conservative campus. That's what he wished for. But of course, uh, the clock was ticking, things were changing, culture was changing, young people were changing, and knowledge was just exploding all around. And uh, Pearson had a difficult time. It was a difficult time to be an administrator for both Hamill and for Pearson. And we see the tensions in one trying to cope with the changes, the other trying to hold back and, and almost prevent the changes. Difficult times all around. And and yet, you know, Pearson was um, in his role for quite a while in, in terms of the history of General Conference President. He had one of the longest tenures. Um, let's talk about his later years. Uh, later in the 70s, he started to have some health issues. Um, can you talk about you know, where his um, focus, how that shifted from uh, his early years, how his leadership changed at all, um, and, and what, what sort of things were on his mind as he was uh, maturing into his role? His, his re-election to the presidency in 75, 1975, wasn't an easy um, period because there was some resistance to his reappointment, particularly from North America. Um, North American Union presidents, and there were others, were a little troubled by some of the more autocratic measures he'd begun to adopt to... Um, enforce a conservative perspective on the church. Um, so there was trouble brew, uh, brewing from that quarter, but he was re-elected. And uh, during the last four years of his presidency, he endeavoured to implement more in a more structured way um, a conservative mould on the church by restructuring the GRI, the Geo Science Research Institute, by restructuring the Biblical Research Institute. And according to um, Ray Cottrell, he, he was becoming um, more authoritarian in that, gently but more insistent. And then, of course, in the later part of uh, the 70s, 77, 78, 
he worked closely with his uh, offsider, Willis Hackett, to try and insist that college teachers follow a certain doctrinal agenda on the authority of Ellen White, the authority of Scripture, and a 6,000-year time frame for, for creation, for the age of the earth, which led to the adoption of a couple of um, confessional statements, and he and Hackett and even Hamill took them around to try and sell them to their college teachers on the college campuses. There was a lot of stress involved with that for, for, Hamill, for Hamill and for Pearson personally. And uh, I think that's really what gave Pearson his health problems or exacerbated his health problems. And he had intimations of a stroke coming on. He had two or three um, warnings about stroke. And his doctors advised him to, to stop work and to stop fairly quickly. So even before the GC session, coming up in 1980, he, he gave notice that he would resign at the end of 79. So the pressures of his office and the pressures of the changes happening in the church really kind of impacted his health. And his, his last sermon to the annual council of the church um, expressed the burden of his heart. He didn't want the church to become just another church. He wanted to remain with its sectarian, he didn't say those words, but by saying we can't afford to become another church, he was really meaning that we need to remain with our sectarian approach to our self-understanding. And he, he made that the burden of his uh, last sermon to the annual council, which kind of, in a nutshell, gives us the frame of mind that he was in. Um, disappointed that he had to give up, his health preventing him from going on, and warning the church that this drift had to stop. <laughs> um, yeah. Was there one major mistake that he made that you think uh, helps to explain who Pearson was and his effect on Adventism? One major mistake. Um, if, if Cottrell's perspective has any merit, and Richard Coffin's perspective as well, and Richard Coffin, these were both significant editors in the church, in touch with, with the readership of the church, the wide readership of the church. They both felt that um, Pearson made the mistake of getting around him too tight a circle of people who thought the same way as he did. That, that his inner circle of advisors did not represent the breadth of the church. Um, and they felt Pearson would have been better, better served if he had had a wider circle of, of uh, confidence in, in the inner administration at the General Conference. That's a great point. Uh, that circle, which included Packett and Gerhard Hazel, among others. Gordon were, Hyde. Uh, yeah. Gordon Hyde, yeah, of all the H's. Um, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, their, their influence continued after Pearson passed away. Yeah. Um, as we're winding down here, I thought I might uh, ask you if there are leaders or leadership characteristics that 
used me as a contemporary observer of Adventism or in past uh, leaders as well that um, mimic or in some way um, give us um, insight into the good and the bad of Pearson um, continuing on for us. Are there things, are there styles of leadership or um, uh, attempts to micromanage or fears about uh, change in the church that you see around us today? I think one of the dangers that we face at the moment, and it kind of has echoes of the same period of Pearson's administration, is when, when church leadership generally does not keep itself informed of, of what is happening in the intellectual world, in the wider philosophical world, uh, leadership that, that doesn't read beyond Scripture and Ellen White um, is in danger of, of misunderstanding the world in which they're called to lead, I think. Um, and and that, that's a danger. I, I think also the danger of, of having people around who who are of the same mindset, um, who are, well, you wouldn't want to call them yes men, but people who, who don't represent the broader church in its diversity. They might represent church in diversity of, of geographic background or ethnic background, but the church is broad um, culturally and intellectually. And theologically, that's a reality because individual believers um, respond to new information and, and new intellectual problems, new discoveries, and they incorporate that information into their faith, their tradition, and remain committed believers, convinced of God's calling for the church. I don't think that's fully comprehended or comprehended adequately. I think that that's a danger that, that we can fall into at the leadership level. So leadership that reads, <laughs> that is interested in what's happening in scholarship's mind <laughs> is, I think, very important for the, for the welfare of the church in the future. Well, thank you. That's a great way of summing up uh, one of the meanings of this book and the legacy of Pearson. I'm looking forward to talking about Richard Hamill with you and also Siegfried Horn. So those will be episodes coming up uh, soon. And I just want to say as a reader um, that I really appreciate all the hard work you put in to researching the facts and, and telling a really important modern history of, of, of uh, my community, the Adventist community. So thank you. Well, thank you, Alexander. It's been a real privilege to uh, to write the book and to to kind of get inside the, the minds and the hearts of, of these significant leaders in the church to, to seek to understand them. And I hope it will help the church to, uh, to have that broader understanding of our past. Thank you very much. Thank you. God bless. Yes, I knew Sister White. 
We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely 